Hello everyone, this is Airy in the Air, welcome back to the podcast, stoked you're here. Today I have a very therapeutic episode with my new friend Daniel Kazanjian. His last name is just beautiful to say, I just love the word Kazanjian. Mm. And he is a very beautiful person himself. He's an incredibly good listener, a very thoughtful thinker, and a composed speaker. And so I think that if you take nothing from this episode more than just how he models behavior in discourse, I think that might be the best thing that we have going on this episode. And I really appreciate his listening. Uh, I kind of talk about some vulnerable things on this episode, and we talk about friendship, and we talk about gender relations, and we talk about redefining ourselves. It's a very interesting conversation. I think you'll like it a lot, and I really appreciate Daniel for having it with me. So without further ado, here's a little music and my talk with Daniel Kazanjian. Perfectly. Cool. You sound like a DJ. Oh, amazing. That's the idea. I'm sorry that I uh, was late there. Technical difficulties. That's all right. Give me a second to actually briefly meditate. Good. So I'm feeling quite Good. calm. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I'm feeling not that calm. Oh, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just had an interview with Jim Rutt, which is awesome i just coined him the john madden of game b (laughs) (laughs) but like right as the meeting was about to start my computer just like blue just black Mm. and i have no idea so now i'm set up in my girlfriend's office here which is a very uh soft space has a good energy down here she's an ayurvedic practitioner and spiritual guide so But yeah, I'm stoked to be here with you, man. Stoked to be here with you. I've had a crazy, like, I don't know, my relationship with Peter Lindbergh has just like put me on some kind of journey, (laughs) not just at the Stoa, but like just reading his journals and there's just like a lot of things that it brings up for me in my own evolution. And um, one of those things is my like a deep gratitude for brotherhood that I have here in my own life here in Oregon. And as a, you know, as a professional action sports athlete, I really like I exist and survive because of my relationships with these people that I go into the mountains with that we literally do things that we can die doing. Um, And so I guess to start, I would just love to hear your 
ruminations on friendship. I feel like as a society, we have, we're, we have to reinvent friendship. Like we mm. absolutely have to reinvent it. Like we have in the, we're like in the midst of some kind of like gender war that we have to end. And we have to like reinvent friendship because it's like crazy how many people have a thousand Facebook friends, but they don't have anyone who can water their fucking garden. Like mm-hmm. they don't have anyone who can watch their dog. You know, like these shallow low bandwidth relationships have seemed to pervade our society. And we're, I think that people like you and me who have deep connections are being called to kind of like show people the way back into friendship, into brotherhood, into like sisterhood, into like having friends who are females that you aren't trying to fuck. Right. You know, it's like, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there, but I would just love to start by, yeah, I'd love to hear your ruminations on friendship. Yeah. Well, first of all, I I think you're, you're like right in the center of the bullseye in terms of one of the most important skill sets or attitudes for, I guess, our modern times. Because I I was thinking about how there's a lot that's wrong with the culture right now. And people like myself and in our in our friend group let's say we like to pontificate on ways in which we would change the culture we would influence it and it's cool to have these kind of big high level ideas about what could be different but at the end of the day when the rubber hits the road it has to do with how you relate to the person right in front of you it has to do with the level of trust you have with the people that are in your life and it has to do with the skill set of friendship and I'm, I'm getting to a point where I almost don't trust myself or I don't trust my ideas or the ideas of others, um, regardless of how beautiful and elegant and philosophically rigorous they are, if they're not paired with real world results in the realm of relationships. So, you know, show me the quality of your friendships, show me the quality of your relationships. And I'll put that at a higher priority than the quality of your ideas. So it's kind of like, I guess, the top of mind for me in terms of the importance of friendship. Um, And then in in terms of, I guess, what to do about it. um, Well, I guess the first thing I'll say, and then I'd I'd like to hear what you think. Um, We've been given, we've been given some strange uh, delusional surface level placeholder for relationships in the form of social media, in the form of these micro interactions. And so I don't think people are feeling the void of their relationships specifically enough. I think they Mm. feel like this Mm. kind of generalized angst. There's a bandaid. I think you're right. And I think that that is a manifestation of the big nap. That is a manifestation of, or that is a, hmm. I guess I don't want to say it's like cause. I don't want to point to causation here, but I just like food systems right now are just like so in my mind Hmm. and they're always being food at the grocery store is like 
allows people to have a shallow relationship with their grocer so that they don't have to have a deep relationship with their neighbor. Mm. I like that. I don't like the phenomenon, but I like the way you put it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if you can go to the grocery store and have your needs met externally, you don't have to rally around the people who are literally right next to you to meet your needs. Well, it's almost as if the market has been steadily encroaching on things that previously were in the domain of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's kind of what, what the capitalist machine does, right? It looks mm-hmm. for more and more things to commodify. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think we've commodified things that normally we would provide for one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what you said reminded me of something I guess I'm imagining about your life uh, because you're, you're a base jumper. Is I've that, done a little that, bit of base jumping. You've I'm done a, a little bit of base jumping? I'm a, I'm a paraglide pilot and a highliner and a freestyle skier. Okay. I also so mountain bike and base jump and do some other stuff. They're, they're all high-risk activities. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a relevant piece. Like having a grocery store where you always feel comfortable that your, your food's going to be there gives you a strange relationship with risk. And I think people like yourself who are very uh, used to risk, I don't know if you're comfortable with it, but you're continually in the face of it, mm-hmm. you'll have a different appreciation for the importance of trust. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some sort of relationship with risk and trust and then relationships that kind of um, some sort of feedback loop there. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely corn. It's like a cornerstone. It's a cornerstone. And I last year, I noticed this phenomenon in myself that was I would go on a huge adventure, go to the other side of the world with my best friend and my paraglider. I'd go on this crazy month long adventure. I would come home and I would do nothing. Hmm. And then I would get to the point where I would become restless and resentful of myself that I wasn't out adventuring. That would then be the fire under my ass that would lead me to concoct some next gigantic adventure (laughs) that I would expend myself to wit's end. And then I would come home and do nothing. And so last year I was like, you know what? Fuck this, man. I'm not going to sit at home. I'm going to just schedule some shit. Jordan Peterson's like, schedule it. I was like, you know what, Peterson, check this out. Check out this schedule. And I schedule, I was going to do like my first ever paragliding competition. I was going to set the American record for highlining. I was going to go to another paragliding competition. I was going to then do my longest paragliding flight and then go to the world record highline in Canada. And between items two and three, my body was like, nope, you're, mm. you're going to be sick is what you're going to be. You're going to be sick. You've, you've overexpended, dude. You've overexpended. One of the things that was experientially gnawing at me was this feeling that I couldn't do it by myself, that I was like almost torn. I was like, am I just a social paraglide pilot? Do I only do all of this bullshit just to show off to my friends or just to like be around people or have something to talk about? Like, is this all that this means to me?
And so I did a couple of solo adventures, go hike up a mountain by myself, fly my paraglider off. And it just became abundantly clear. It's like one alone is a lot less safe than with your buddies. Mm -hmm. Like my relationships with these people literally mitigate my risk. And furthermore, the type of people that I'm relating to mitigate my risk, which I think this is incredibly relevant right now. It's incredibly relevant. That's exactly what we're talking about. Like literally when we look at our existential risk, we can mitigate it by who we relate to. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's not a permaculturalist in your friends group. You know, like you might want to, you might want to open up your friends group to someone who has some kind of intuition as to food systems or what, you know, child rearing or mechanics or any number of things, right? It right. Just like comes down to self-reliance really. And self-reliance redefined that's not individual self-reliance, self-reliance as like a networking reliance that, you know, I don't, I don't actually exist outside of my relationships to my friends and my relationships to my grocer even. I'm imagining like a stock portfolio of, of friends and you want it to be relatively balanced. If your relationships are too homogenous, then you're over indexing on one lifestyle or one set of Absolutely. skills or attitudes. But if it's balanced, then you're mitigating some of your risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Diversified and balanced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Also, it's just the most joyous, rewarding things that I've ever had are like the flight is good, but landing with your buddies after the flight and being like, wow, look at what we did. Like, look at what we experienced. Like, did you see that eagle that we flew with? Like, also, just my intimate relationships, the joy that I derive from my partnerships, both with men and women, my closest buddies and my girlfriend. This is like the, this is the fucking juice, man. <laughs> this is the juice. This is the, this is the shit that we really want. This is what we really crave. Like this is what's down there. And the band-aid that you're talking about, that's like, huh, why do you have a shitty relationship with your girlfriend well because you have a shallow relationship with your cell phone and a shallow relationship with your grocer and a shallow relationship with your therapist and a you know it's just all these different band-aids that make it kind of go around it just like kind of keeps it going even though it's like in its nature relatively dysfunctional i also think that this is kind of a bold claim but almost everything that everybody pursues in life, whether it's career or mastery in a certain discipline or status or something like that can easily be framed as a proxy for connection and intimacy. Mm, absolutely. So if, if someone's trying to climb a corporate hierarchy, you just ask a few whys behind mm -hmm. why they're doing that. Why do they want that financial status or that security? And there's always going to be this big relational component. Mm -hmm. And we just absolutely. kind of get misguided. We, we conflate the proxy for the thing that it's meant to represent. 
Mm, that is that is an incredibly wise insight, and it's so true, Daniel. It's so true, man. And the problem with that insight is it fucking hurts. Mm. It fucking hurts, man. Like literally, if I'm like, yeah, I'm a professional action sports athlete in three sports, and Daniel's like, oh, you got daddy issues, huh? I'm like, <laughs> no, fuck you, Daniel. I'm awesome. Check me out. Watch this backflip. That is a, it is a, it is a wise insight. And I think that it can be a both hand, I think. Mm-hmm. It can be a both hand because I am relatively transparent in my need for connection. But I also have a hard time knowing the motivations of the 12 year old me that wanted to do backflips on my skis. But I imagine that I was like, Hey, big brother, don't ditch me. Don't ditch me. I'm like, I'm worth having around. Check me out. Like check me out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's, um, and I think what we're kind of almost bridging into here is like a level of intimacy with our real needs like whether we're intimate with ourself or with our partner or with our friends, like there's this level of intimacy that necessitates or precipitates the real thing. Like you're saying that there's like a proxy and then there's a real thing. The real thing is the connection. The proxy is the thing that we, used to band-aid the hole that is there that connection fills. And I don't actually think that we get the depth of connection that we want if we're not transparent and vulnerable about that need. Mm -hmm. Right? Because we end up putting on a mask. We put on a mask and we're like, hey, no, like I really like you. Like, I don't need you. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I really like you, but like, you know, where like the real vulnerability is, is like, we're all like almost, and I don't want to say all of us because there's people who I just see as incredibly robust and well-rounded, but the vast majority of humanity is seemingly teetering on the edge of like, something bad, whether that's like depression or mental breakdown or something bad that manifests in myriad ways. And I feel like that is the, the whole, the whole that like the real thing that we're looking for that we try to fill with proxy is like leaves us exposed to teeter on the edge of malevolence or shadow or depression or suffering or so many different manifestations of that. And so I think your inquiry is to like, what are the band-aids that we're putting on that? 
and further like whether we should rip them off mm. or not and how to rip them off. I think that's a really salient inquiry. And I just was talking to Jim Rutt and I asked Jim, I said, what, as we work towards game B, what is our relationship to game A? How should we feel about this? Should we be ripping off people's band-aids or should we like, how do we go about this? How do we go about this? Because I feel like the realization is that it's painful to admit these things and coming into right relationship with this pain, with this suffering, with this failure, this is all really important, but it's like modernity is like, you don't ever have to face that, Daniel. You don't ever have to face that. There's like a, some kind of casino lottery machine that'll give you dopamine in your pocket. And you don't really ever have to face that if you don't want to. What do you think? What do you think, Daniel? Like, what do we do? What are we, are we the SS who comes around and, and lines up people's delusions into mass grave? Or are we therapists who try to soothe people's inner child so that they can wake up? What is it? What's our job here? I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer, but <laughs> my, in, my intuition is that whatever we do, it, it needs to be done lovingly. Mm-hmm. And to me, that means you acknowledge, you know, take, take like a behavior, like narcissistic behaviors on social media. It's easy to judge that. But the hard thing to do and the effective thing to do is to have compassion for what's driving that and what the need is underneath it all and try to relate to somebody on that level. Because you know, like, as you were saying, human beings, the vast majority of us are, are largely fragile and we have a lot of problems in our lives and we're acquainted with suffering. And so people are finding different ways to cope and there's, they're ineffective, but there's deep relatable needs underneath those coping mechanisms and approaching them with love, I think creates enough of a space for some other choice to be made about how to get those needs met. Hmm. I agree that it needs to be done lovingly. I guess two things come up for me. One is, can you be the SS and line up people's delusions and fire them off into mass graves lovingly? Two, Schmachtenberger has, you know, he's told his own story of Im, like uh, his own intellectual evolution that there was a point in his life where he gained this insight that, okay, when you take someone's behavior, whether it be narcissistic or not, you can infer some emotional state and you can empathize with what would bring that behavior out of them. But there's also this four to 6% of humanity, right? This four to 6% of humanity that 
we might be having a really hard time of actually imagining the processes that are bringing that kind of behavior out or that empathy might not be the right response to. And so I guess what I'm wondering is there's like almost an intersection of like lovingness that becomes tough. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of how the Christian God is often described mm -hmm. as equal parts loving and equal parts just. Mm -hmm. And so there's these two things that seem like they are in tension with one another where there's some pretty strict rules about sin mm -hmm. in the Bible, but in the new Testament in particular, there's a lot written about Christ's uh, unconditional love. And as I say, this it also reminds me of kind of the, the archetype of the father and the archetype of the mother when raising a child mm -hmm. and how, and this isn't necessarily this doesn't necessarily map onto the father and the mother, but I guess these are archetypes that, that uh, populate our minds that the father brings more of an initiatory role in the child's development, um, setting boundaries, setting rules. And the mother brings more of a nurturing, mm -hmm. compassionate role. And obviously real, real life mothers and fathers can do both. Um, but I think uh, a lot has been said about, the how how the father has kind of been missing in this past generation mm -hmm. and maybe maybe that's also a piece here where there's not enough initiation there are no clearly established boundaries i don't know what do you think of that it makes me think of just like the difference between masculine and feminine energy, especially an actualized energy. And I totally agree. In the archetypal sense, the mother is the nurturer, the father is the protector. He's the builder, she's the lover. He creates, she feels. And in reality, you can have mothers and fathers who can do both and, mm -hmm. who are a mix of these energies. And I think that if I were to look at my own evolution as a barometer of what is likely to emerge. I think that a acceptance of the mix of our energies is of utmost importance. I think that for at least two and a half decades, I thought of myself as man. Mm. Um, and in the last two years have learned to cry mm -hmm. as a man. I also think that, I guess the next thing that comes up for me, we talk about like 
we kind of started this as like, what is it in friendship? Like what is our current state of friendship and where ought we go? How do we reinvent that? And I have just so like lately I have been so enraptured in my own relationship with the feminine. Mm. Say more about that. And honestly, it was like, this was like partly triggered by Peter's writing. Mm. Um, I've had this shtick for a couple of years, actually. And it first was labeled in my mind as anti-feminism. It was based on the ideas that what third wave feminism was actually like was prophesizing was actually hurtful to everyone. And so I was against that ideology because I thought it was hurtful to everyone. But now my idea is more of like a new feminism, a new gender relationships, a new manhood, a new personhood. I have said over and over that all of the problems that we face in the meta crisis are issues of maturation, that we are Mm. literally just immature, that it is like, you know, Stein made the point on my podcast that it's as if in late adolescence, a boy gains the strength of a man. He gets a fast car. He's sexually um, mature. He has money, but he does not have the maturity to use wisdom and love and care in exercising all of these things, right? So he knocks up a girl, he crashes his car, he fucks up his relationships, and he spends money on bullshit. And in general, humanity is facing similar problems. And my biggest shtick with feminism and I want to preface anything that I say about feminism with the idea that my thoughts are certainly me trying to digest my own upbringing amidst the ideology and trying to reinvent my relationship with I don't think it's reinvent my relationship with women because I've always had very strong and loving and communicative relationships with women. And it's not that I'm not growing in that, but it's like, it's almost like with the feminine as opposed to women. What what do you mean by that? What do you, when you say the feminine, do you mean the feminine within you or the feminine in the world or the feminine politically? Both. Both. Both and both and in myself i i experience it as like coming to terms with my own neediness i really like have a disdain for people who are needy Mm. and only have recently been like oh yeah that's because you're needy (laughs) and you don't like that about yourself (laughs) you know um yeah it's definitely it's definitely I think 
in general, just to answer that pointed question, I would say that it is more dealing with myself than it is dealing with the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I would also say that my shtick with third wave feminism, as I've experienced it as a man, you know, one of the things that the point that is seemingly most contested is like the gender wage gap and Mm -hmm. this statistic that only 7% of fortune 500 companies are, are women, the CEOs of them are women. And I see this as my empathy is that women have actually taken their own experience of oppression and been brainwashed into pointing it at men in a warring way. It's like Mm. you're oppressed. So take up arms against the people who oppress you. Zero sum. It is very zero sum. And my sense as I get further into playing the metagame with you is that the fortune 500 companies are paint a pretty good picture of what's fucked up. Mm -hmm. And the CEOs of which are embodied in a way that we don't want. And third wave feminism is essentially saying, look, girls, you're oppressed. You need to grow up to embody the worst of men. And you need to compete with them at the game that destroys the planet and tears apart the fabric of society. And women are like, yeah, 77 cents on the dollar. They're like, I'm like, wait, no, like, I want to encourage women to be fully actualized, to be fully mature. And I want women to accept nothing less from the other sex than maturity, love, wisdom, care. But that's not what's being asked. Certainly not in what I've experienced. And it's not to say that I don't know women who are so embodied and represent the gender relations that I'm referring to, but I also have just seen so much man-hating. And I also think that I grew up in a time where as feminism came out, it became a weapon for pubescent girls to use at pubescent boys, right? Like just the conflict that arises in public school is like, you know, like the mainstream media then armed these kids with the term sexist. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, I'm like, whoa, that's, and I, I, don't know exactly like a pointed trauma that I have, but I just, my own sentiment around that, I just like, there's some kind of lurking experience that I've had, whether it's acute or nebulous that has led me to feel like led me to feel that I've been under encouraged to mature and to actually become actualized by the opposite sex. And I think that the new feminism, the new friendship, the new brotherhood, the new sisterhood is actually not your oppressed, fight your oppressor. And it's more like 
it's more like suffering is inherent in existence and maturity and love and care and wisdom and the highest possible perspectives, the highest possible actualization of yourself, the highest bandwidth, highest trust relationships you can build that are the most vulnerable, the most intimate, like the language around it is not there. And I think it should be. And I don't have a clear, I, I, it's a half-baked idea, Daniel. It's a half-baked idea and I know it. And I'm okay with that. And I feel like I'm healing it just by telling you this. Mm. And I'm also having these conversations in real time with women in my life. And I'm seeing the shortfalls of this ideology when they pick partners, when they pick men. Um, what do you this mean? Is maybe, is that what you said? No, what do you mean by the ideology of picking men? It seems like it seems like women play into their own oppression by reproducing with game A assholes. <laughs> this is a shtick that Stefan Molyneux has just banged the drum over and over and over. That's like, okay, there's some agency in your own oppression here. If you grow up with this kind of wound that you refuse to look at, and then you are oppressed by the men in your life only to pick, date, marry, and reproduce with exactly what you hate. Um, there's, there's agency in that. There's agency in that for sure. And by no means do I think that sexism doesn't exist. By no means do I think that women are not oppressed in, even in America and the Western world where they're as, they have it as good as they've ever had it, right? I don't think that they're not oppressed. I don't think that sexism isn't a thing. But what we measure is what we think is important. And my experience with feminism is what is important is economics. What is important is power. I think that's a product of a deep spiritual impoverishment mm -hmm. of our times. I was talking to Andrew Taggart, the philosopher the other day, and it's a very poignant moment where, I mean, I'm not going to be able to, to reproduce it as eloquently as he did, but basically the best indication that we're so deeply impoverished spiritually, for lack of a better term, is the degree to which human beings are obsessed with such trivial things and orient our lives in a way that is so shallow kind of bring it back to what you were saying earlier, like shallow relationships, but also the fact that it's been put out that it, it's a desirable thing to be 
the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, maybe the most desirable thing, that's how you win at this game of life, is such a, it's, that's such a trivial aim. And when you have all these probably market-driven signals that are pointing everybody in that direction and occupying our, our goals and reward systems, then you're going to have political movements get hijacked by that as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe, maybe a lot of modern feminism is speaking to economic issues when really the issues are at a much deeper layer, but we don't have the, the grammar for that. Yeah, they're being purported as economic issues where indeed they're psycho-spiritual, they are maturation issues. And I sympathize in a really deep way for the shallowness of the selection pool that women have, right? And that's why, that's what comes back to this, you know, the new brotherhood, the new manhood, the new personhood, the redefinition of what it means to be a citizen, to be a brother, to be a father, to be a partner, to be a husband, to be a friend. As a man, I feel a responsibility to deepen the pool, to make the pool mainstream so that women are like, oh, this guy who has a big truck and makes X amount of money, that's exactly what I'm looking for. He's signaling all the things that society has conditioned me to look for in a partner. And I also, there's a wound inside of me that has been, that they've tried to silence me because I'm a man. Because if I'm a man, I, have, I can't say anything about feminism. If I'm a man, I can't have any kind of opinion on what it is to be a woman, right? I just want to, interject here to to what extent have you experienced that firsthand and to what extent is it a generalized feeling you have given what we see in the news and what we see on social media i think it is more generalized than it is acute and i think it is more generalized than it is acute although I mean, I've been pretty outspoken on the internet for the vast majority of my adult life. And so have definitely run into being called white, privileged, and male, (laughs) of which I am certainly all three. But I also feel like it is identity politics at large that remove the grammar that remove the forum that is the basis for our relating. They create perverted incentives. Mm -hmm. Perverted incentives. That is the fucking, that is pretty close to the heart of what's wrong. Hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know, man. I just, um, I've had this sentiment for a long time that like our relationships, I smoked DMT for the first time in a decade about a month and a half ago. Hmm. And I just like got mandelbrotted so hard. <laughs> and this like crazy felt sense, two things. One, that my that the line between existence and non-existence is so, so thin, so, so thin that I'm just like so lucky to exist as I am, as with my mind and with my experiences and with my family and with my friend, like all this shit, right? And the other thing was that I only exist in relation. I'm only relatively alive. I'm only relatively existent. Mm-hmm. which contextualizes my deep desire to reinvent the ways that we understand our relationships. Because I want to exist. I I do. I have a desire to exist. I feel it when I do my sports where I'm like, I don't want to die right there. Let's not die right there, but I still am going to paraglide. And Ron Burgundy. But yeah, I've, I don't know. I don't know, man. I feel like this is just one of like the cornerstones of what the transition has to look like. Whether you say it's the transition from boyhood to manhood, whether it's the transition from unconsciousness to consciousness, it's like, how we relate to one another, whether it's citizen to citizen as strangers, me to grocer, me to neighbor, me to friends, me to best friend, me to partner, me to child, me to abstract feminine. Me to me. No shit. That's the fucking heart of it. There it is. Yeah. I I think, the you said something earlier about how your distaste for neediness in others is essentially a reflection of the neediness that you were experiencing in yourself and then your distaste for that within you yeah i'm gonna edit that out of the podcast (laughs) there's a there's a relationship there where um if you learn to accept that quality within yourself then it's easier to accept it in others and you start to realize that that coming back to this idea of love practicing love for others is tantamount to practicing it for yourself and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And self-love, like true self-love is not some narcissistic endeavor. It's actually love for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the spiral dynamics, right? Like how far up the ladder from egocentric to cosmocentric can I muster my empathy? Yeah. It definitely goes both ways. It definitely goes both ways. And I was trying to explain this to someone the other day. There are times in my life where I have recognized something in someone else that gave me empathy for something inside of myself. And there are times that I have realized something in myself that gave me empathy 
outside of myself. So it's a both and thing. But it seems like, you know, to get back to the idea that these are painful band-aids to rip off, it's easier to grab somebody else's band-aid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much easier. Easier so to much, see it. It is. It's easier to rip it off, too. <laughs> oh, does it hurt when I poke you here? I don't know. Do you have an intuition as to what's more effective? What makes a more lasting change? Is it from which direction does it last longer, go deeper? Yeah, I think it, the devil's in the details. Some people might respond to mm-hmm. these really harsh moments of realization, um, but some people they might they might have a reaction to it. I know some people that if you have if you present a cogent argument um, pointing out that some pattern of their lives is pathological. They kind of like update their models on the fly and they're like, wow, thanks for that. And they kind of move on. Uh, But I know a lot of other people where that just would completely backfire and they would get further entrenched in whatever pattern you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. And there's some people that you, it doesn't really matter what you say propositionally. Like your the, the quality of your arguments, the quality of your words don't mean so much to them, but the quality of your presence or uh, other gestures mean mean a lot to them. And so I don't know if there's a generalized answer here. It's such an interesting inquiry, though. Whether or not I develop further by looking in or looking out. And you know, this is, I was just talking to Jim Rutt. In 2013, him and Jordan Hall and all these dudes tried to start the Emancipator political party. Hmm. And the big divide that shut the entire thing down, that they started fighting over, that they couldn't reconcile, that ended up dividing the group and ending their movement was whether or not it was more effective to encourage introspective work from the ground up or whether it was that we needed better institutions from the top down. Hmm. And he laughed because he was like, "How it was? It's crazy that there was fifty of us who are some really fucking smart people who couldn't realize that it was so clearly both and." I tend to think that we're addicted to looking out. I think that the media has become a giant machine that merely tells us what's wrong in society. And we are just parrots of that. And it's always out. It's out. It's out. It's out. Cause it 
hurts to rip off band-aids and I don't know if you've ever crashed on a skateboard or a bike or something with something that something where you crash that the substrate onto which you eat shit comes in into you and then the only way to begin healing is to take a Brillo pad, a soapy Brillo pad, and go ahead and just scrub the living shit out of your wound. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I sympathize with people that we don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. That's why I have to go back through this podcast and rigorously remove all of my flaws from it. <laughs> I also don't think it needs to be that hard. Tell me more. I don't know. I think one thing I've noticed in, in introspective and ambitious people is that we have a, a bias for things to be difficult. Like mm. if you're presented with a fork in the road mm-hmm. and you don't know which way to go, the path that's harder is probably the right path. And so you mm. kind of like gird your loins and you go down that path. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it can be done lightly. It can be done with humor. And just knowing that that's an option or just like the way I'm kind of presenting it, uh, suggesting that it could be an option, I think is an asset because sometimes it is, you know, sometimes you'll realize that you actually don't need to do, you know, 10 years of therapy with annual ayahuasca rituals and, Mm -hmm. you know, face the void on a regular basis, but Mm -hmm. you can just, I don't know, let it go, let it go or or play with, with mm-hmm. something or yeah. dance it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I'd like to be open to that. Like mm-hmm. if, you, if you were to take an audit of your life and point out the times that were characterized by the most dramatic growth. Yeah, I'll ask, I'll ask you this. Like what what uh, characterized those times? Like what, what were the... What was happening around you during those times? What were you doing? What was consistent across those growth periods? When I learned to highline, when I learned to paraglide, and when I got a divorce. Mm-hmm. First two sound fun. Really fun. Set my mind on fire. Such a beautiful way. I want to go back for a second. I know people who, just like you say, doesn't have to be hard they like have an epiphany that shows them something about themselves and they're like oh hmm yeah okay that's the path that's not even that hard what are the things that condition us to make us believe that it has to be hard for me it seems like the mask that we wear that we all have to fucking have it together 
it was a pretty big force in our lives to want to pretend that it's together. Absolutely. Hmm. I'm definitely available to rewrite my belief in human nature that that has to be hard. I think that's really fucking, that sounds so powerful. If I could just reimagine that it doesn't have to be hard, that we actually want to have our unconsciousness, our pathologies brought to us with a loving argument and that we are liberated by it as opposed to burdened with the task of ripping off the Band-Aid and scrubbing with the billow, billow, or Brillo pad out our salty wounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this all reminds me of a concept that's been quite helpful for me, which is the difference between hard discipline and soft discipline. Mm. Um, if you think of discipline as in, as like self-instruction, so like teaching yourself, which is the root word. Most people understand discipline is something that you kind of pull yourself together and do. You get yourself to do something. And I think there's a place for that. Sometimes you just got to white knuckle it got to gut it out it's like what Jocko says discipline is freedom I think there's a place for that but I think there's this other type of discipline where it's not so white knuckled and it's more about creating the conditions for a more easier playful transformation for more easier playful self-instruction and usually it takes longer usually it's not an overnight thing Uh, it, it requires a lot of patience But most importantly, it requires a lot of truth. It requires a lot of honesty and honesty at very, very deep levels. And so I think if there's a bad habit that you're trying to break, if you are really honest with yourself about why you like that habit as well as why you don't, and you just kind of like keep going down that path in a very honest discussion with yourself, then you might not need hard discipline to pull yourself out of that habit. You might just get to a point of of understanding. You see this a lot where people take psychedelics and then they have a transformation because all of a sudden they see the world differently and there's no hard discipline involved. Yeah, it's a perspective shift that precipitates emergent behavior. Mm. Yeah, I found myself pretty allergic to the first kind of discipline. There are some times where I need a reset and my live really close to the river and the river's cold here and I'll jump in it. Mm. I have a really hard time getting in the shower if it's cold. Yeah. No, that doesn't feel right to me. This is the idea of twisting my arm behind my back. This is what I have felt since COVID as this switch that has flipped inside of me to do this fucking podcast that is, Before, it was like a way for me to tell my adventure and travel stories as a sponsored athlete, and then it kind of morphed into my deeper ruminations on relationships and life and politics in general. 
And then I read Jordan Hall, something he wrote that was like, upregulate your autonomy, discernment, integrity, find people who are doing that, and then fucking turn up the volume on their channels. And I was Mm -hmm. like, it just changed it. It just absolutely, it was just, it was just absolutely changed it. Like my motivation to turn up Daniel's channel through my channel is so much stronger than to try to turn up my own channel. Hmm. And it's so much more fun. Fuck. It's way more fun. It's been very healing. It's been extremely educational. It's also confrontational. Hmm. I've also had to confront things. I mean, even in this conversation, I'm confronting a number of things that I'm not sure exactly where they live or what they look like inside of me. And I do, I feel like that's like a thing that I'm going to really ruminate on after this conversation is the idea, the conditioning, the story, the narrative inside of myself that my change has to be hard. The narrative inside of me that says when I find my shadow that I have to not like it, that I have to set my phaser to kill and zap it out of me. I want it to be easy. I want it to be easy. When I think of my, the archetype of my highest self, when I find something that is unconscious and it becomes conscious, that's joy. Mm-hmm. That's not pain. That's joy. Why, is that, why do I have that story that it's pain? Well, because sometimes it is. <laughs> The reality is it's, it's both. I mean, if, if we're expecting it to be easy, then I think that's, that's a liability, but mm-hmm. a counterintuitive liability is that when we expect it to be hard, we miss out on the opportunity for it to be easy, which sometimes mm. it also is. Mm. And so I think it's both and being open to both gives you the best advantage. It's both and. Hmm. Daniel, I've noticed that every week you host the metagame mastermind at the STOA. Mm-hmm. I have wanted to be there. I have signed up for it three times now and three o'clock on a Saturday is just a really hard time for me to be behind the computer. Right. And so I haven't made it, but I, I'm so curious what goes on. What is, what is the, what is metagame and what does it mean to mastermind and what are you doing there? What is that? What am I missing out on? So the weekly event is specifically at this point about masterminding, which I guess uh, the tagline I have is we're prototyping digital gangs to help people raise their sovereignty. 
and respond to the meta crisis mm -hmm. and comes back to the very beginning of our conversation, the importance of friendship. And basically I'm, I'm trying to find a way to create groups of people online, starting, starting with three members, maybe going up to six members per group where individuals care whether or not you show up. They care whether or not you are attending to your life in a way that is in service of sovereignty. And ultimately the stretch goal is that everybody figures out what their best contribution is for the current moment and perhaps respond to the meta crisis. But I really think like healthy tribalism is one of the answers to this. So that's what we're prototyping on, on Saturdays. Um, and that's the mastermind component. We're calling it the metagame mastermind because the metagame to me is this broader concept that represents, I guess, the, this, this type of radical openness that's very playful, that puts you in a position where you're, you're willing to sacrifice your perspective and you're willing to renegotiate your epistemology for whatever is most appropriate for the given moment. You're willing to go meta on what you're doing you're willing to both and, and you're willing to play. And I, I kind of like it as a, as a, as a game, or I like the analogy of the game, mm. um, just like the analogy of game A and game B has proven to be useful. To me, the idea of the meta game is, is this continually adjusting liminal state of reflection and participation. I know that sounds really vague. Um, and so I, I'm happy to, to sharpen it up if it, if it needs to be, but that's, that's a yeah, start. Do it. Sharpen up. Well, you know, the example of uh, the Kobayashi Maru from Star Trek. No. So it, that's a, it's a case of a classic meta game where basically um, it was a no win scenario. And I, I don't remember the details. I'm not much of a Star Trek fan, but it's kind of like a cultural piece that a lot of people know um, where it was, it was basically a simulation, a, a test to see how a captain would respond in a no-win scenario. And Captain Kirk knew about this. So before the next run, he actually reprogrammed the simulation to convert it from a no-win scenario to a scenario where there was a win available. And instead of being called out for cheating, he was actually rewarded for finding a way out. And he basically went meta on the, on the game that was that simulation and found another way out. And that was actually the lesson. And I think we have opportunities to do that all throughout our lives because we're playing so many games. Mm -hmm. So one common example is you're having an argument with a loved one and you you're both kind of in opposition because you want to prove your point and they want to prove theirs. And to the extent that you win and prove your point, they're going to lose and it's zero sum. But then there's a moment where you can go meta and be like, wait a second, I love my wife. Or wait a second, I, I love this person so much more than I care about my point right now. And then that higher frame allows you to find another way out of that mired game that you never really signed up to play to begin with. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one element of reflecting on what you're doing and deciding if you want to play the games that you're in, um, opting out of the ones that you don't want to play, and then learning how to play the good ones, 
really, really well and being a really good player in them. So that's, that's one aspect of the metagame. Can you just, um, can you just for a minute, just what is going meta? I have an idea of what it is, and, but describe what your definition is there. There, there are a few ways of going meta. Um, but basically, it's, it's a move that reflects on the thing that you're doing. Mm. It's, it's going up a level, which yeah. is, is one analogy. Uh, Bonita Roy has a, has a really good taxonomy. She, she articulates six different ways to go meta. Um, which kind of give a more structured picture of this. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but it's almost uh, zooming out and seeing it's like leveling. Like when you say going up a level, it's like almost zooming out so that you can see your own interaction in the game from uh, almost an unrelated perspective. Yeah. Or, I think it's it's helpful to think in terms of examples. Like one example that comes to mind is meta conversation, where if at, at some point all of a sudden I started to talk about how you and I were talking, mm-hmm. as opposed to actually having the conversation, we're now having a conversation about the conversation. Mm. That's, that's going meta. Mm. Okay, great. Thank you. Continue. I derailed you at... I think I know where to pick up. Let's go. Um, another aspect of the metagame is the self-reflective aspect. So there's going meta in terms of what we just described, going up a level. There's going meta in terms of reflecting on something, kind of like the snake biting its own tail, mm-hmm. which you know, those two things can be the same, but I find it's helpful to think of them separately. And the metagame is a game where the, its rules can be negotiated. Like one of the moves of the metagame is negotiating or changing the rules of the metagame mm. because it's all self-referencing. Now this can lead to complete incoherence, right? Like you can easily, you can almost see the snake biting its own tail and then disappearing, um, which is a risk when it comes to putting something like this into words. But I like exploring it because it's like a liminal concept, a concept that has undefined edges that are continually rediscovering what they ought to be. And so what I think is advantageous about a a concept that is self-reflective and allows itself to be renegotiated on the fly is that it leaves room to update in accordance with reality. It leaves room to like if, if we only have one model, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, then there's going to be many situations that you're ill-suited for. Like if we come back to what we were saying earlier, ripping the Band-Aid or, you know, setting up a firing squad and shooting down people's core beliefs. If that's our only approach, then we're going to fail with a large number of people. If that's the only game in town, then, then we're kind of screwed. But if we can play multiple games and if we can go meta on whatever those games are, and then reflect on and come up with what's the most appropriate thing in the moment, then we have a better chance. And then if we can even reflect on the process of reflection, 
and ask ourselves, like, should we even be playing the metagame? If that is also a question that's available to us, then I think we are, we have increased the likelihood of being anti-fragile with our response to reality. Mm, I really love that. I think it's so well put. And I want to, I would love for you to say more about being anti-fragile in our response to reality. That's a delicious little nugget right there. So to kind of ground ourselves, the, the concept of anti-fragility refers to things or systems that increase in stability through exposure to volatility and chaos. Well, while something that's fragile breaks down in the face of volatility and chaos. Something that's robust can withstand a certain amount of volatility and chaos, but then at a certain point breaks. Something that's anti-fragile actually benefits from it. And uh, you know, an example is um, our bodies to some extent are anti-fragile in that you put some sort of physical stress on your muscles and then they actually grow, they actually get better. Your bones can increase in density. And I, I really think that any philosophy, any attitude towards life that's worth its weight needs to be anti-fragile because reality is going to keep going and it's going mm. to change and it's going to subvert you. And if you don't have mechanisms in place to benefit from those changes, from that volatility, then everything is going to break down. Um, Stoicism is often considered to be an anti-fragile philosophy because it allows you to transmute suffering. It allows you to transmute obstacles by training your character and your virtue muscle in the face of it. It essentially sets up like a flow chart for how you respond to difficulty. And by going down that path of behavior, you actually increase your, your strength and robustness. And so I'm interested in, in that space. Like that, which is anti-fragile is, is interesting to me. I love this concept of anti-fragility. And once you start to even ponder on it for a second, it starts to like pull the veil off all of our systems. Good friendships are anti-fragile. Uh-huh. Say more about that. You know, like if you go through a pretty stressful experience with someone where you, you have enough trust for that relationship to withstand that stress, that conflict, it tends to improve the relationship. Mm-hmm. All, all my closest friends, like every once in a while we get into a fight and we get into like a pretty serious fight. And at the end of it, we're closer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a good sign. Yeah. Your leg very rarely breaks in the same place twice. Mm. I'm curious I, I want to hear your thoughts on when relationships need to end because I feel like in the new model of friendship, there is a firing squad for the old shitty friendships. I find that when I look back at my life, Daniel, You picked your friends more on like 
who was willing to do the drugs that you wanted to do rather than like who you wanted to be around. Right. Or who just happened to be there at the time. (laughs) So how do we like, I feel like I could say more about how to build the friendships than how to clip the bad ones. Well, I think first of all, it's important to really underscore the premise that you just brought up because some people don't even, don't even buy that. Some people have a lot of difficulty with the idea of, of breaking ties with people. And I think it's important to really boost that idea because you only have so many hours in a day and you only have so much energy. So to the extent that you're investing that time and energy in people that don't deserve it, kind of a harsh thing to say but people that don't Mm. benefit from it and also in a way that is taxing you you know unfruitful investments of that time and energy Mm -hmm. to the extent that you're doing that you're you're robbing the other people that do deserve it and that would bear fruit so you, you have an ethical responsibility to allocate your time and attention and energy where it is most fruitful and as soon as you accept that then you realize that okay I, I can't keep everybody around all the time. Like there's, there needs to be quite any boundaries. And uh, sometimes people sneak behind those boundaries. I know for me, um, pe- the people that are the best at sneaking behind those boundaries are people that I grew up with mm-hmm. because they kind of grew up behind the boundaries to begin with. Mm-hmm. When you had and, no boundaries. Yeah. When I, I didn't even know who I was. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they were kind of there. And then at some point you start to realize like, a, a, I actually had a, a few friend breakups, let's say in the last uh, six to 12 months. And one of the things, one of the questions that really helped me realize whether or not it was fruitful to continue spending time with these people was if I met this person like a month ago and they were behaving this way, would I continue to sign up to see them? And in these cases, the answer was unequivocally, no, it was like clearly, clearly the case that if I just met this person, all these alarm bells would go off and I wouldn't want to spend time with them. But the fact is I knew them for so many years that I, I never had the chance for those alarm bells to go off. Mm-hmm. But on a, I guess a warmer note, a clue for when to end a relationship or a friendship can be when you end romantic relationships because I think most people or many people are familiar with breakups where it, it was so clear that it was the best for both of you. You know, where you reach a point with a romantic partner where you realize that if we keep staying together, it's bad. It's not just bad for me, it's bad for them as well. And it's almost like the breakup can have a loving component to it because mm-hmm. you care about that person's life and you know that you're not good for each other. I think the same can, can come up with friends. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you realize that this isn't good for them or me. That's a really painful moment. Hmm. Right. That is not like a, a loving breakup is not like a joyous thing. That's a very painful thing still. I wonder, do you have any intuitions? What are the, I guess I want to tease it out of you, but I guess my, my intuition as to why it is that way is 
based in parenting, that we have this allegiance built into our parental relationships, that we are so existentially fragile as children, that we have no choice in leaving the people that we're around, right? And this is why Stockholm Syndrome in regards to abusive parents is so widespread. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, I guess I would love to hear your thoughts on the parental manifestation of this phenomenon that we're kind of talking about. Yeah, well, like, as a kid, you you depend on your parents for survival. And so it's an any kind of abandonment is an existential threat. Mm-hmm. And I think that even even parents who do everything right can create these traumas in their children due to the intensity of that threat. Even if it's as simple as, you know, your mom was like two steps away in the mall. And as a kid, like you just, you thought she left you. And then you just have this like traumatic experience that's imprinted on your nervous system. And she didn't even realize it. And then, you know, later on in life, when you're having like your first romantic relationship or something, they behave in a way that somehow triggers that trauma and you have some intense coping mechanism because part of you still thinks it's an existential threat. So, and you know, that goes back to this whole thing of like digging deep and figuring out what unconscious behaviors are, are producing pathological relationships in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes I wonder if it's even valuable to take that whole psychoanalytic approach. Like for me, I, I find you know, it, it could be a useful story to offload some of the, the blame, let's say, you know, you can say like, yeah, like, you know, stuff happened to me when I was a kid and, you know, you can get all specific about it. But even when you have like, let's say the psychoanalytical truth about why you are the way you are, you know, some mm-hmm. parenting thing, you still have to do something about it in the present. And I find that that background story is not that helpful for what you have to do in the present. I mean, sometimes it could be, but for me, it's only helpful insofar as it takes some of the guilt away from why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving, but I still got to figure out what to do about my behavior. Now it's not like, it's not like it's resolved once you have a psychoanalytic story to explain it. Yeah. And I think the, I think I so totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I feel like the angle that I'm almost leaning towards is more it's not a for the children to cope it's for the parents the like the current parents it's almost like i totally hear what you're saying that like the story can be burdensome the story just knowing might not actually be helpful for your own situation. But there could be 
future relationships that very much benefit from you knowing that story. Right. So that you don't perpetuate the trauma onto others. Absolutely. Absolutely. I got into philosophy eight years ago, nine years ago, something I'd I'd kind of started to realize these stories of my childhood. I came across Stefan Molyneux on YouTube doing a presentation on peaceful parenting. And having just such a visceral realization of how profound of an impact parenting has on our society. Mm how profound of an impact it had on me and on you and on everybody. It is. It's like the foundry. It's like the foundry from where we come. Right. And so I'm very sensitive to the conditions in which people would be abused and accept their abuse. And then not tell their parents, hey, I've kind of grown up to realize that even though you tried your best, like there are these traumas that happened to me. And in my own experience, I've basically been met with, you had it pretty good and we did our best. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that parents are like a protected class that get the blanket of we did our best when in reality parenting should be the institution in society with the most scrutiny mm-hmm. and not an unloving scrutiny. No, a deeply loving scrutiny. The things that we're talking about are things that I've dealt with my whole life. This like spectrum of entrapment to abandonment that I want to be free, but please don't leave me. Right. And I don't know how much the, I mean, I think the story helps. I don't necessarily think it helps for everyone, but I think it definitely helps at least be able to zoom out. But I guess one of my deep, like I have an intuition that one of my gifts to the world is in regards to parenting. Mm. I think it's one of the institutions that we, of all of the things that social justice warriors have brought up, the outcries for justice in education, justice in child rearing are so vastly, vastly underheard and have such far reaching implications into all of the other injustices that we can look at. 
And I know it's a Mandelbrot. I know if we zoom in on anything, we're going to find ourselves back at the beginning, you know, the cycles of life, the cycles of trauma, the cycles of parenting, the cycles of dysfunction and abuse and unconsciousness are, I don't know, seemingly fractal. But I have to believe that progress is possible and that we are amidst it. And that it doesn't always have to be hard. And that it doesn't always have to be hard. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. We have to reinvent the idea that it has to hurt us to apologize. That's a really deep one. That's a really, really deep one. Especially as parents, especially as lovers, especially as friends. Hmm. Questions coming up for me that might be good to just ask more often, which is how can I do this with joy? Hmm. I imagine if you ask that, you'll probably find an answer at least half the time. That's definitely a muscle. How can I do this with joy? Hmm. I want to get incredibly practical here. I have a, an app on my phone. I think it's called Mind Jogger. And basically it allows you to program your own notifications. And every now and then I'll put like some prompt, kind of like this one. And 15 times a day at random intervals, it'll just tell me so uh, one of the recent ones was how can I make myself laugh and it would just pop up every now and then to the point where sometimes I'd see it and I just chuckle just by seeing it mm -hmm. and so I know what I'm going to do after this call I'm going to program it to say how can I how can I do this with joy mm. and if that pops up in the middle of something that is otherwise tedious then maybe it might help me train that muscle mm-hmm the joy muscle. I'm just kind of ruminating on the example of being a parent and having your child come to you with trauma that you played a part in if didn't just outright create. which is a hard thing to do with joy. Mm. Some of the hardest moments I've ever found, some of the most painful things I've ever found are the when I realize I have done harm, I have created suffering in people that I love and I've done it on accident. I've done it unconsciously. Those are, that's fucking hard shit, man. That's really hard. How do I do that in joy? I'm not sure. That seems like a Brillo pad to me. Well, it could be both because mm -hmm. there's joy in the realization. Mm -hmm. There's joy in the hope. Mm 
even though there's pain in, I guess, yeah, in the realization as well mm-hmm. and noticing that you've fallen short of something. Mm-hmm. But there's joy in healing. Yeah. Liberation. Mm. What was that? Someone slammed something. It's been great, Daniel. Yeah, I uh, didn't know what to expect from this conversation, but I'm I'm grateful for for where it where we went with it. Me too. I'm super grateful. The other night I had um my quarterly acid trip, and I. I, I've been reading Peter's journal entries every day. It's like, I don't read anything every day. <laughs> I don't do anything every day. But somehow I fucking read Peter's journal entries every day. And he talks about wanting the desire to be a virtuous man. Mm-hmm. And this for me is at the heart of friendship. This is the heart of brotherhood for me. This is the reason that we have these deep relationships is to uphold each other's desire to be virtuous men. This kind of language is exceedingly fucking rare. Mm-hmm. And I have, I grew in courage to talk about these kind of things and then found myself lonely. And I was like, okay, maybe we'll just be okay people. Right. And so this, it's like almost, I guess the other night as I was starting to trip out, I could feel this like connection, right? The party was my best friend's birthday. And like my best friend, Matt, is like probably as deep of a brotherhood bond as I've ever had in my life. I have a couple of them that are on this level, but like this is one is like particularly, he lives two blocks from me. Mm. Like we are like, geographically and like we're in constant communication and we push on each other, but we listen to each other. And so in the celebration of his birthday, I could feel our bond and I could feel the resilience and the anti-fragility and the support and the love and all of these things that are like, ethereal but palpable and we had the party at our local paragliding site and i could also feel our con- our connection as a paragliding community i could also feel our connection to distant paragliding communities mm-hmm. i could feel like our brotherhood bond that is like connected through a few layers of separation to peters and Daniel's in Toronto. I'm like, okay, like, I don't know. I, it was this, uh, it was like this felt sense of connection through ideal. Hmm. Right. Which is really fucking powerful thing. This is like, this is the fabric of jihad, right? <laughs> this is really powerful stuff. If yeah. People blow each other. People blow themselves up over this shit. Yeah. That's something that religion definitely offers people and sometimes in Mm -hmm. unhealthy ways. Mm -hmm. 
And so... Yeah, there's something about this podcast lately, man, that's made me feel like I am tied into the right ideas, the right people, and that I am both healing and learning and growing and getting closer and closer and closer to the to the to the sharp end of my gift. Um, well, one thing I've noticed about you is that you you seem to do everything with a pretty high level of sincerity mm. and i really appreciate that i think being sincere is incredibly important and in some cases it's slightly out of fashion you know people people like taking kind of a an aloof Cynical. distanced approach and you kind of you're speaking your heart out in a way and i i think there's something about that that encourages or increases the likelihood that you're going to find gold. Mm. It's almost like reality will meet you if you approach it sincerely. If you don't, it won't. Mm -hmm. It brings up like the relationship to the muse for me. Mm. Being available for the muse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, honestly, that's like, hmm. thank you for that reflection. That's nice of you. And I do, there is something about it too, that like the nature of your and I's relationship has me wanting to be seen I don't know like is I don't know transparently vulnerably I think that the liminal is getting to me. Sir, I think I'm losing my mind. But I might be finding something else. I think that you're right that I am sincere. I've noticed that. And also as I start, as I continue to play the metagame, I desire to be earnest. And I have begun to see through to my old game A, even just game theoretical plays with my girlfriend. 
which actually when I say that doesn't seem that hard for me to face. That one doesn't seem so hard. But I think to bring it full circle, I think I deeply desire friendships with people of both sexes. I deeply desire a brotherhood of people who will hold me to the highest standard I can come up with. I don't want to be held to anyone else's standard. Mm-hmm. I push against that allergically. But dreaming up what is the highest possible manifestation of my own character, my being, the content and tone of my words and presence. And I think that one thing that is missing and is so important is a verbalization of those things, a communication of those things, to put it out there. And it's rare. It's rare that you find people that when you tell them that you want to be earnest, that they actually have enough discernment that they can look at your behavior and hold you to that. And boost your signal and downregulate your noise. Absolutely. So I'm coming up to the end of my time here, but I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Ari. (laughs) I really enjoyed it with you, Daniel. (laughs) We'll do it again, huh? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. You're such a great listener. I really appreciate your presence. Yeah, I appreciate you just kind of exploring things so openly and earnestly and and playing, you know, felt very playful. Yeah, I'm so glad to be in the sandbox with you. Cool. (laughs) until next time i'll oil up the tonka trucks buddy (laughs) hey man see you see you daniel okay you guys hope you like that thanks so much daniel i think a general person i had on the podcast early on was rich bartlett and he said that he wants all of his relationships to be therapeutic i couldn't agree more and i think that this conversation models what it might look like for two men to have a therapeutic relationship between the two of them and I really appreciate that I think that it's time for Daniel to come back on the show because I'm in need of more therapy so if you like this show leave a five star review and consider donating that's paypal.me slash airy in the air I really appreciate all the support I love you guys. Stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe. We'll see you in the next episode. Peace.